Welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. My name is Ben Wilson. I'm your host. And today I have a very special guest that I am excited to introduce everyone to and to also get to know myself. I'm connected through Zoom today with Pam Rocker. And Pam is an atypical activist, a speaker, an award-winning writer and musician. And she was chosen as one of Calgary's top 40 under 40 and also sits on the, the committee for Pechacucha Calgary and for a decade has worked for the inclusion of LGBTQ2S plus people in faith communities and in society at large as a speaker, as an artist, as an advocate and as a teacher. Pam, welcome to the podcast today and thanks so much for carving out some time to, to connect with me from your home today. Oh, absolutely. What a pleasure to be here. This is going to be sort of a casual conversation where we'll dive into some really important and deep questions, but um, also just a getting to know each other as well. Uh, this podcast is really about exploring real stories of human spirituality. And so uh, I'm really curious about your human spirituality story and your own journey. But um, as an activist and someone who is working um, to further um, the rights of LGBTQ folks and uh, in specifically in the community of Calgary, what are some of the, the biggest uh, issues and most important work that's been on your mind uh, right now that, that you're working on currently? Yeah, a good question. I have to sort of uh, filter through all of the different <laughs> issues that are on my mind right now. I'm sure. But I would say um, in Calgary specifically in the past couple of months, we have been working in a more acute way to ban conversion therapy. I mean, it's been, you know, happening for years. And I know I started doing, getting involved in the work probably two years ago. And, you know, for those of you who may not know what conversion therapy is, um, it's any treatment practice program uh, or attempt to make uh, either a homosexual person, bisexual person um, act or become heterosexual or to have a gender diverse person, a transgender person um, remain cisgender, remain in the gender that they were assigned at birth. So it's actually quite a rampant uh, problem across Canada. I think a lot of folks might think that, you know, the more intense parts of it where they, you know, doing electroshock therapy and lots and lots of, you know, I would say really barbaric physical interventions were done. Fortunately, those are, you know, very, still exist in some places, still exist in Canada, but much, much less common. At the same time, you know, so many things that we would call, quote unquote, modern conversion therapy exist. And, you know, we know that there are, for example, in Calgary, at least 20 churches, organizations who run conversion therapy programs just by one of the conversion therapy organizations that we know. And that, that's so, today, like currently, Pam? Right now. Oh my yeah. gosh. And one of the reasons that it continues to exist other than toxic theology is, uh, you know, it is, it's pretty insidious because when you think about the the systems that we're in, our religious ideology that we're in. If we come from a place that we equate heterosexuality with holiness and as sort of the pinnacle of the way of being, 
And if heterosexual relationships and families are more, you know, what I would call rewarded in society in terms of that's what we continue to see as the norm, that's what we see mostly in the media we consume and the songs we listen to, that sort Mm. of thing. And then we add this other religious layer on top of it where so many folks misinterpret, you know, scriptures in order to condemn, you know, being outside of that norm. There's a lot of different ways that people can be oppressed um, and repressed where they can kind of, you know, get away with it in a lot of ways. The folks who, mm. who you know, aim to do um, what I would call, and many times, and they would call behavioral correction, right? Um, and so they completely sort of strip the identity from queer folks in order to say, well, we can change your behavior to be more Christ-like, to be more holy, right? We can so, fix you. <laughs> right, absolutely. And, and I think now their language has gotten more sophisticated. And I'm saying they, but, you know, I have to generalize, you know, people who support conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, their language has gotten more sophisticated because they have realized that they actually cannot change orientation. And so instead of, you know, promising that change, which is completely scientifically and psychologically unproven, they promise that with their help, they can correct your behavior, right? So they actually don't deny that people are gay, um, but now they say, okay, that's how you feel, that's fine, but you can't ever do anything about it. And so it's basically like acknowledging that someone's an alcoholic, even though they haven't had a sip of alcohol in 20 years. And so we're going we're gonna to fix the behavior. We'll, stop, we'll help you stop drinking, but, you're, but you are an alcoholic and we acknowledge that. Yeah. And, and I would say it's, it's more like, um, you know, if we even make it more real to a lot of folks who are listening, it's like, um, you know, I, I think that you're heterosexual. I'm assuming you are, Ben. I don't want to make any assumptions, but, <laughs> you know, if somebody said that's fine, that you are, yeah. um, no problem, but you can't ever be with or marry a woman and can't ever have the kind of family that you dream of. But you know, don't worry, you're doing what God wants you to do, right? Yeah, wow. So, um, I can't imagine that. Right. And so, but it's, um, so if that's, you know, and a lot of people say that folks who go through any sort of conversion therapy, whether it's formal or informal, that especially adults, they say, well, you know, people should be able to choose that, you know, why would they go into these programs unless they wanted to? But for me, when you have those systemic things set up, um, you put somebody inside of a maze and you tell them there's only one way out, right? Right. And so the consequences are so great, especially if you're within a community or a family or workplace where you know you're going to lose so much and you know you're going to lose the thing that is the most critical to each of us as a human, which is a sense of belonging. Mm. that how could we ever um, attempt to say that that's a choice for someone? So all that to say that's, you know, I, you mentioned in my beautiful intro that I've been doing work sort of in the intersections of faith and queerness for a long time. And I think that this one is, it's really on my heart because during that time I've met hundreds of people who 
we often call survivors of conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. And we do that on purpose because abuse has happened to them. Sometimes it's physical. Um, All the time it's emotional and spiritual. So I have met so many folks who have gone through it at some point in their lives or are going through it when I have conversations with them or somebody is trying to convince them to go through it when I have conversations with them. And so the reality of this, these practices is tangible to me. And I feel like, you know, I feel like it's, it's very much on the level of it's this sort of underground wavelength that's always happening. And only once in a while we as a society recognize and realize that it's happening like so many other issues. Absolutely. So, you know, I think the, it, you know, I I hate to be grateful for it, but you know, I can't be lazy about it because when I think about that issue, there are hundreds of faces in my head and my heart, right? Mm. Real Um, human people that you have heard their stories and their plights and their hurt and their, their traumas. Yeah. Uh, of all ages, um, who, you know, for however long, sometimes decades, um, were in situations where they were completely taught to be ashamed Mm. of, um, of who they wanted to love, you know, who they wanted to, a shared life and be intimate with um, and robbed of any sense of, I would say like even being able to have integrity in, you know, the relationships they have and to be able to even, you know, whatever family looks like for them to not even be able to attempt to have that. Mm. And, you know, that's not a, many of us have no idea what that's like to just, to just be completely ashamed of, of this immutable characteristic yeah. um, that is nothing to be ashamed of. So, you know, on, on a more, you know, that's sort of giving a little bit of the history of it. And in the present moment, in the past couple of months, we have had a lot of movement in this in Calgary. And in February, we were uh, part of a movement to support a ban in terms of drafting a bylaw against it. And believe me, I know way more about city council and all these things <laughs> than I ever wanted to know. Um, but, you know, a really beautiful thing about that day is we knew that we wanted to show a huge, you know, public uh, sense of support. It was really, really important to us because this has been in the news. And, you know, as a uh, we know that so many folks who are not out, or even if they are, I'm lucky enough to have so many people in my life who accept me and support me right now at this point in my life. It hasn't always been that way, but I, I'm really, really lucky. That's not true for most people. And so we knew with all of this in the news, we wanted to make a really big showing of basically saying you're not alone. And so mm-hmm. not even a political statement of we support banning conversion therapy, but also you know, what about the 13-year-old trans kid in Hannah, Alberta, you know, who has been hearing all about this or maybe has gone through something but has no, you know, personal connection to somebody who says you're okay. Mm. And so it was really beautiful. We had about, on the day that that decision was being made, we had about 150 people come out to City Hall Chambers 
Wow. We completely filled the chambers almost with all of us. <laughs> there were <laughs> eight uh, people who were supporting conversion therapy, like who snuck in and got in the first row. Um, and we all had rainbow scarves on. And oh, so, you awesome. know, you were looking around at the chambers and we, all, you know, there's all these people with these rainbow scarves on, uh, which somebody really kindly made for us. So, um, you know, we, it got past that day, which was great. And it was, to me, that was, you know, beyond legislation, the biggest thing that happens when we can create change is making pe people feel empowered and like there is a possibility and there's a hope for who they are. Because legislation is really important, but it doesn't necessarily overnight or even over however many years change the way that people are treated every day or the way that they might, they might have been taught to feel about themselves mm. or the way so others true. have been taught to feel about what's normal or not. So, you know, that was really encouraging to me. And, the, and a really encouraging part of it is most of, of the folks who showed up to support were people of faith, you know? Oh, that's um, incredible. Yeah. And we had clergy show up with, you know, their collars on and rainbow crosses around their neck, you know, whatever. <laughs> And um, I think so many queer folks who weren't affiliated with religious organizations necessarily who came were just, you know, they come up to me and they're like, is that, you know, is that minister like on our side, you know? <laughs> and you don't know right <laughs> at, at first probably. Right. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, that's, you know, whoever. Right. Yeah. And so I think it was also, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of taking back the narrative and disrupting the narrative that, that religion must be discriminatory in order to be legitimate. Mm. Mm. And so that to me was a big disruption of that narrative to say the people who are showing up right now are saying that this is our faith actually calls us to, to go against this thing mm. that um, has been so harmful because we don't believe that, that anything about conversion therapy is about liberation. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's taking place in the context of faith communities, this whole idea of, of conversion therapy. Like it's, it's, it's a fairly specific thing to churches, right? Like this conversion therapy isn't something that's uh, in a large way happening outside of Christianity, I'm guessing. I mean, well, maybe I some, mean, is, you know, is it, or is it, my I, assumption I'm, is that it's yeah. kind of a, it's a, it's a Christian church um, ideology that's driving it. And, uh, and that's where it's taking place. Yes. And, you know, unfortunately, there's different forms and different mechanisms in different faith systems. So, for example, Roman Catholic um, Church in North America. And, you know, to be fair, that's the thing that I know most, most about is North American context. We know lots of different stuff happens around the world, obviously. Sure. Um, there's you know, Jewish versions, there are Muslim versions. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's really rampant because they have the same structure, right? And if we think about the connection of like Abrahamic belief systems, you know, that structure and sometimes those scriptures in particular um, in the Old Testament, especially are taken, you know, and misinterpreted and then applied in all these different ways. Yeah. Um, so but I mean, because I am, you know, I identify as a Christian because my background, you know, uh, for the first 25 years of my life was evangelical. 
I choose to pick on Christians <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's my lived experience. And that is what I feel like, um, you know, I, I am part of, of that system and, and I have the responsibility to, to speak against the parts of it that I believe are death dealing. Right. Mm. And, um, so yeah, I mean, there, it, it exists in lots of other forms, unfortunately, at the same time, you know, my work in particular, there's people who work on, you know, in lots of different levels for other um, ideologies, but for my, you know, my system, my belief system, that is, that's what the work that I'm called to do, right? Mm-hmm. What a sense and, of purpose that must bring to your, to your day, right? To your life, that like work that really is so important, so systemic, and so wide-reaching. You talked about just hundreds of lives that you're aware of, just you personally, Mm -hmm. and then within just your circles of Calgary as a community, Christianity as a a system. Um, This is a huge win then, it sounds like, for for the queer community, for the religious community as well, and for Calgary, and for Alberta. I mean, I'm sure, I'm hoping that a similar um, work is being done and victories are happening uh, with bylaws and, and things like that in other communities as well. What do you see as kind of next uh, emerging out of this for your community and for um, like smaller communities like, like mine out in rural Alberta Yeah. to hopefully benefit from that? Yeah, oh, for sure. So uh, first, I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit from February to this to May, because um, as I said, learning about city council, there's a lot of things that have to be approved just to be approved in a different way. Okay. <laughs> um, so it was approved that they would draft a bylaw in May, they had a special committee do like a public hearing around it. And then they had a city council vote on May 25th. So super exciting. <laughs> but um, during that process, and I think this is what is particularly interesting to Albertans at this moment, when they had the public hearing, they had more public engagement than they've ever had on any city council history in the history of Calgary City Council. No okay. way. And wow. part of the reason for this is great. And part of the reason for this is terrifying because conversion therapy providers in terms of what we found out reached out across Canada with very uh, strategic campaigns and form letters and really easy ways for people to reach out. Um, and they encouraged people from across Canada to write in and to pressure Calgary city council to um, not support the ban or to change the wording in such a way that it would still allow them to do the work that they're doing. So we didn't really realize this until um, we got the first batch of written submissions and we were looking through them. And the first 300 pages that were submitted were 100% not in favor of the ban. And we realized, you know, over time, we got different emails and intel or whatever that this is what was happening. And um, that this was a really concerted effort. And part of why you know, myself and lots of folks who I'm working with believe that this is happening, this happened, is because the wording for the bylaw in Calgary is so strong, it's actually stronger than the drafted wording for the federal ban, which isn't, which hasn't been passed yet. And so 
I think that this was sort of an example of saying, we want to squash this because if this goes through, what kind of example does that set of what else is possible? I see. So it was drawing a lot more attention than it maybe otherwise would have locally. Yeah, for sure. So we, I mean, we knew it would be a thing, right? But, you know, we didn't realize. And so actually over, they had to make two days of the hearing because they had 121 people sign up to call in and that's an unprecedented number. And, and every person out of that 121 gets five minutes oh my gosh. to say what they want to say. So, and, they, and they have to say yes. To, they have to allow everyone. They can't say, sorry, they we're, do. we're full. Wow. They do. They did cut off. I think um, after 13 hours, they cut off. They said there's two more hours where you can submit to speak. And then okay. they cut it off. Uh, <laughs> but that was after the first day was literally... 13 hours. And the first day was incredibly negative. You know, uh, I questioned a system where it's still okay to call in and everyone gets five minutes, no matter how homophobic or transphobic they are in the name of religious freedom. Okay. But that's a different podcast. Hour. <laughs> we can spend time on that another time. That sounds good. Um, so anyway, it was a, a extremely long two days and uh, we, we, you know, listening to almost 20 hours of people calling in was even if even supporters, even survivors, right. It just was a lot. Um, on top of, I think there ended up being over 1800 pages of written submissions as well. Wow. And and to so, listen to a lot of that being, like you said, if, even if it was all a hundred percent supportive to your cause, it would still be quite the day to get through. But a lot of this would be very triggering when it's, um, when it's so um, passionately opposing what you're right. trying to, to work for. Um, I can't imagine yeah. what that would have been like for the folks wearing those rainbow scarves, sitting there and listening to all of this and, right. and having to listen to some of it that would be um, extremely hurtful words. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, there were some, because it was, you know, the good and bad thing about it, you know, us not being able to gather is, you know, obviously we wanted to be safe. That's a good thing. But also it meant that people from across Canada could call in, right? Um, And a lot of the folks who opposed did so. And because they had an unprecedented amount of callers, you would have to call in in different batches and stay on the phone sometimes for hours until they got to you, but you didn't know how long it would take until they got to you, right? So folks who called in who maybe had gone through conversion therapy of some form, sometimes they were on the same batch of having to sit on the phone and listen to the same person who put them through conversion therapy on the same call. And that happened multiple times. And so, you know, here we see this and we see this in so many other issues too, because we don't believe people that we continue to ask them to tell their stories um, and re-traumatize themselves in order for our benefit to finally believe them at some point, hopefully. And so that was a huge example of that. And, um, you know, really unfortunate that, you know, and most of the survivors felt compelled because of course they want to prevent other people from going through this. But, you know, yet they're sharing like some of the worst moments of their life in order to hopefully protect others. And that's just, that shouldn't be their job, right? 
So anyway, we got, we got through it. There's going to, there's scars that happen there for sure. And that's just the reality, no matter what got passed in the end. So that committee passed it. And then the city council meeting met a couple of weeks later. And that was again, a six hour debate just with city council members, which was again, quite wild. And ultimately the bylaw did pass as is with no amendments, which is exactly what we wanted, uh, 14 to one. So wow. uh, it was a huge, huge victory for um, so many folks who, you know, saw the wording of the bylaw and said, you know, this, this would have protected me in some way, this, right. this particular wording. And, you know, it, 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 its scope and what we hope that it remains and it is enforceable is really, really strong. And we, so we feel extremely grateful to have had the amount of support that we did. And then the biggest thing that I thought of is like, you know, don't mess with Alberta queers. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> when, when, you know, we found out that this was happening, we reached out to folks in the community and, and beyond. We just thought, you know, if, if you, you know, if somebody wants to, to use Calgary as an example and say, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to target this really conservative place and, you know, make sure that it's, it's, you know, uh, shot down here that doesn't have a chance or whatever. I mean, this really showed me a huge example of hope that, you know, the tenacity and the determination and the passion that Albertans have who fight for justice mm. and who are way more numerous than I think we are led to believe and to show that, you know, we are not alone. And, mm. you know, you're going to try to make an example out of this particular city. Well, we're going to flip that narrative. And, mm. and I think that our support and our messages to city council and, you know, just letting people know that, know that this exists was, you know, I think really did influence in a positive way. So that is positive. And then now we'll get to your question. Um, <laughs> Maybe I'd be a good politician because I'm like, well, the real question is, no, I'll get to your question. You have great questions. Um, we hope that this does encourage other, other municipalities to um, feel like that's possible for their area, right? And, and because the wording and all of the research that went behind it, it it's some of the, the most in-depth research on any bylaw, honestly. Wow. And so you know, it's, it should be the strongest legally. It's the strongest in all of these different ways. And so that research that's already been done on it exists. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we know that with the current government, provincial government, there probably won't be any uh, positive movement in terms of banning conversion therapy on a provincial level. Federally, they're trying to put it in the criminal code, but you know, that's awesome and it, and it should happen. And, uh, but we also don't know what that timing will be or what the wording will be like. And what I come back to when people say, well, why don't we just wait to see what the federal government does? Uh, we don't have that kind of time, right? Mm. When you think about how it impacts people on a day-to-day -day basis and what the stakes are for them. For sure. And how long um, these processes can take. Are there other cities in like larger cities in Canada that are, maybe even less conservative. Like Calgary is kind of viewed as a conservative city, like you said. Um, are there similar bylaws that have already passed previously, like are, that are yes. ahead, of the, ahead of where Calgary's at and elsewhere in, in the country? Yes. So to this is to my recollection at this moment in time, 
Edmonton, uh, which you might already know, uh, uh, so passed a bylaw to ban it. Um, St. Albert actually did as well. Uh, the city of Vancouver, um, I believe Saskatoon, and then a couple of provinces have banned it. So Ontario, Manitoba, um, I might be forgetting one in here. I've been so focused on Alberta. But here's the thing. Many of those bylaws are only only protect minors, right? Oh. Which so is very important. Yeah, for but, sure. But then we're leaving out a huge demographic of people who are still impacted by it, right? Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why Calgary's is so strong is because, you know, abuse has no age limit, right? So we, um, that's a really key piece that we mm. have. And so we hope actually that the wording that we have will help influence federal legislation because do you think Ontario wants to put, um, you know, forward a, you know, wording that is weaker than Calgary, Alberta? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, you know, we're hoping that, you know, the work that so many folks have done for so many years, even before I, I even was involved in this work, will help to influence, you know, hopefully the whole country. You know, mm. that would be fantastic. I hope so. Well, congratulations, yeah. Pam. It's it's amazing to hear the story behind that, you know, that headline and uh, just knowing such a little, such a small amount about it personally and living in Alberta. I'm really glad to hear that, that we are kind of leading the way um, and that Calgary is, is leading the way. Thanks in large part to you and other leaders in your community that are making a difference and doing that research, doing the advocating getting people out and um, just making sure that the voices and stories are heard from that community. And like you said, it is um, a larger community than people realize. And I, I would assume that that's uh, at least partially because in some ways it's not a super visible community all the time. You know, there's, there's so many people that are part of the LGBTQ and queer community that um, you would have no idea until you until you get to know them, until you hear their story. Mm -hmm. It's not, it, it can, there can be visual clues that like, I think that person might be part of that community, mm -hmm. but not always. Yeah. I, I remember, um, I was just sharing with my family, an uncle of mine who, who passed away 10 years ago. Um, I had no idea that he was gay until I was mm. probably like 11 or 12 years old and like super mm -hmm. close relationship with him. And I remember, like, act, like overhearing my grandma talking about, I wonder where Tim meets these men. I, maybe at a gay bar. And I'm thinking, what the hell would Uncle Tim be doing at a gay bar? Oh, my God. And it just, it hit me. And I had, but he doesn't, he doesn't look like visibly queer. He doesn't, you know what I mean? Right. And, and so, and I mean, I was young and I was from rural Alberta. So I was even less exposed. Right. Um, but in, in many ways, it's it's different from visible minority groups mm -hmm. where it is so obvious that mm -hmm. someone is part of, of a minority. Um, and so the, it, there are all these people who um, either are scared to, to come out, right. scared to share their story. Maybe there's, maybe they would love to be, um, uh, be an advocate or, or do more, do more to, um, to uh, help that that community that they're part of, 
but if they're not even feeling safe within their own home or their own uh, mm-hmm. community or their neighborhood or their faith community or their church to right. to self-identify, yeah, then they're they're, they're, they're how much can they do right? So uh, right now is a great time to be talking about this, especially because it's June, it's Pride Month. Mm-hmm. So that is the time when um, when a lot of people will emerge and take part in either a Pride Parade or um, some type of event or online, maybe social media campaign that uh, helps to spread these important messages. Right now, it's it's a little bit different this year with uh, all the restrictions that COVID has on how we can um, how we can get together and how we can organize things like pride parades or even things in our churches where we're not having church services uh, and would normally love to. You know, this Sunday we're going to be celebrating Pride Sunday in our church, and and I know Robin has been uh, exploring and ask. He's done um, a lot of asking questions to the community, you know, what should we be doing? Which is so, I think, so critically important that he's not just as a hetero white male saying like, this is what we're going to do. He's asking the community, what would be meaningful? What would be valuable? And so we're going to be doing things like we've got a a pride um, flag that's going to be draped over the communion table this Sunday. Mm -hmm. We've got, Mm -hmm. uh, I think Robin was uh, working on getting a a rainbow candle and someone in our community was baking some rainbow bread to to break on Sunday which is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you, what are some things that that you've been thinking about that are maybe creative ways that the LGBTQ2S+ community can do to celebrate Pride Month um given that you know we're in the middle of all this craziness. Yeah, um First of all, rainbow bread is the best. So <laughs> huge props for that. Yeah. Shout and out to Chris. Thank you, Chris. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, my address is, you know, um, <laughs> I think, you know, to use an example of some of what y'all are doing, you know, I, I teach a lot on this, uh, this acronym PI, okay, P-I-E, which, is, which stands for Public Intentional and Explicit. And when folks say, you know, what is an affirming community? What are affirming actions? I often encourage them to say, what are we doing that are under these different words? What are we doing that's public and intentional and explicit? So to me, the sorts of stuff that that you folks are planning and implementing in many ways, you know, fall under those categories and also sort of stand as when we are wondering what to do, we can hopefully get some inspiration from that. Mm. And um, we actually have a national affirming Pi Day, PiDay.ca, if anyone wants to look it up, uh, which we had to change and do Pi Day online this year because it's March 14th, um, but that's that's okay. So uh, back to your question about what folks can do. I think, you know, a big uh, thing that many people have been availing themselves is obviously, you know, things online. Mm-hmm. There's two different things that I think of. One thing is how do allies celebrate Pride Month? Right. Um, And what does that mean for somebody who wants to be an ally to the queer community to celebrate what these, um, you know, gender sexually diverse folks, you know, who they are and to celebrate their existence and go beyond, you know, tolerance, go beyond even acceptance, but into a sense of belonging and into 
you know, past permission and into promotion, right? Mm, and one thing that I would encourage folks to do is to, um, this, and this is really simple. So if you're a person who's on social media at all, you know, find a list of authors, influencers, artists, activists who are queer and follow those people. And just say like, you know, I'm going to find 50 people this month who like they have this lived experience that I don't have. They have this expertise or this voice that maybe I don't hear from as often and organically fill your feed with those voices because they're going to be invested and interested in, in possibly things that you may not know about otherwise. And you know, so this is a, this is a way maybe that this is a spiritual practice for you is to say, how am I being influenced by the voices that I consume every day? Mm, that is brilliant. We, we hear about how social media algorithms create this echo chamber that right. Twitter, Twitter and Facebook are going to curate a feed for you that is based on what you engaged with and what you looked at and what you read previously. Absolutely. And so over time, it more and more and more becomes just um, an echo chamber of the things that you already agree with. It, they're not going to feed you the, the content that's the polar opposite of the way you see the world and the, the worldview right. you have, the, the political opinions that you have. The stuff you click on, it reinforces that, okay, this is what this user wants to see and we want to keep them online so they can look at more ads. So we'll give you more of the same. Right. And so I, I hadn't thought about, about that as being uh, a spiritual practice, but you're absolutely right. And we're, we're hearing so much of that right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the jo George Floyd protesting uh, going on in the United States and um, all the, the media attention and social media attention that that's receiving globally. We just had this uh, on Tuesday, this idea of Blackout Tuesday, where artists were just posting a black square uh, to their Instagram mm -hmm. or to their Facebook or to the various channels. And I think that that idea of intentionally going outside of your normal network, your normal circles, and saying, who are some, some thought leaders that I could follow, that I could read, that some TED Talks that I could watch, or podcasts I could listen to that I normally wouldn't? Mm -hmm. Because we kind of forget that, you know, we, we generally tend to clump together with people who look like us, sound like us, talk mm -hmm. like us, and believe like us. <laughs> Right. And, and to not expose yourself to thoughts and beliefs and ways of being that are outside of that um, is, it can be, it can have the unintended consequence, I think, of supporting the status quo. That's Where, right. like we were saying earlier, I think maybe before we started recording uh, today, Pam, uh, you, you might self-identify as someone who is uh, non-racist or non-prejudiced towards any minority, but if you're just statically and, and, and inactively living your life and not doing anything that that actually supports those groups, then maybe you're not really helping as much as as we right. think we are, right? Right. And there's, I mean, and this has been going around too, but it, I think the reality is you're either racist or anti-racist, right? <laughs> like, so anti, you know, implies action too, right? Mm -hmm. 
Right. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's also, you know, we talked earlier about disrupting the narrative, right? Just disrupting the norm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, consuming media and, and other voices, um, in a way that, you know, frankly, it's the easiest thing we can do is follow people with different voices than us, right? But it does disrupt this idea that I'm only going to be, um, you know, seeing uh, ideas and thoughts from people who will, you know, I, who, even if they feel a little bit challenging, I'm still probably going to feel pretty comfortable with what they're saying, mm. right? And, you know, I have been personally challenged with that in the past um, you know, week or so thinking to myself, how many people of color do I have on my feeds? Mm. Because it's one thing to have, you know, other white folks who are invested in anti-racist, you know, ideas and actions. It's another thing to hear from folks who, um, it's not just an idea, it's, it's their everyday experience. And so they're going to have a, a different perspective on what I need to do to be supportive to that movement. And also what I need to be reminded of in terms of my complicity. And so, you know, I think that that's a challenge to all of us in any sort of, you know, experience that we don't know anything about is to say, you know, what am I already doing every day, which mm -hmm. is, you know, two, four, maybe these days, 10 hours on social media. <laughs> and, you know, and I think, you know, for those who are listening, who are, you know, what identify as a person of faith, there are so many amazing queer theologians. There are so many amazing, um, you know, ministers and faith leaders, uh, obviously people of color, there are so many queer people of color, like there are so many people who exist that can also, if we want to be um, invited into action with that, with a faith lens, mm. that we can also follow folks who, you know, are saying, because of my faith, this is what I'm compelled to do. And this is where I get my grounding and my strength. And this is why I can challenge myself and other people, because this mm. is what we say uh, we believe in, and this is who we say we are, and how can we actually be those things in the world? Oh, I so, love that. That's so powerful. So, I mean, and believe you me, that I have to to say that to myself too. And you know, in this past week, making a more intentional effort. You know, I I'm like, oh, my feed is really diverse. Blah blah blah. And then I look at it, I'm like, hmm, Pam, is it? And I, you know, had this list of folks who I really appreciate, um, who maybe I wasn't following or, you know, I read their book at one point, but I don't know what they're saying right now. And maybe about 20 folks. And my experience on Twitter, for example, is completely different now. Just after intentionally shifting yeah. what, you're, what you're looking at, what you're paying attention to. So instead of seeing perhaps half or, a, you know, a third of my feed being from people who don't have um, any difficulties because of the color of their skin. Um, now I'm hearing more voices and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really uncomfortable in a lot of ways. Right. Um, it's hard to, to sit with. It's hard to be with. Yeah. I mean, we, we all sit, we're all sitting at home and we're scrolling through social media. We're watching the news. We're watching what's going on in the United States right now. Um, 
and you know whether it is around uh, the black community, the LGBTQ, 2S plus community, there are so many disturbing and just awful examples of how humans are being treated that are difficult to watch and but yet there there's such an abundance of these examples and of these right. traumas and of these violences um and hurts that we kind of tune a lot of it out unfortunately we and i don't know how we get to that point as a species that we can watch our brothers and sisters and fellow human beings literally be be killed or and or and just marginalized and repressed and and then go and you know get a burger or just you know right. carry on with our life or go and watch Netflix it's like it, we know it all is is uh is still happening in in other parts of the world and in our own communities and yet i don't know if we just feel frozen by the belief that well i'm just one person and i can't really do anything to change the system or to change other people's beliefs and other people's behaviors. But I mean, you've shared a story with us today that, um, that massive change is possible when Mm -hmm. some really passionate people get together and advocate. And, and so one other thing I wanted to ask you about Pam is in addition to being an activist and an an advocate, um, you are also uh, an artist and I'm really curious what your thoughts are as an artist in, especially right now during Pride Month, but as a writer, as a musician, and I think you're also a playwright, if I'm not mistaken, what um, what can you share with us and our listeners about just the importance of the arts in helping to advance equality in mm-hmm. whether it's gender rights or um, reduce just reducing prejudice and hate in general? What, what right. does what does the arts? do for us as a as humans in that space right um uh i i tend to forget a lot of things so there's one story that i want to tell you but it should go after what i'm about to say um so i'm just going to tell you the name margaret i want to tell that story maybe at the end but okay i won't let you forget okay thank you so much so uh yeah in terms of the arts so what i would say is um, when I think about creating, so I had a, a queer feminist ukulele comedy band for four years. And wow. you don't hear that every day. I know we're the top in our genre actually. <laughs> and it was so, so much fun. And we were able to write a lot of songs that, that um, you know, just about our own experiences in life, whether it was street harassment, stereotype, um, you know, the unique challenges of relationships, awkward family dinners, um, you know, all kinds of things about, you know, being female identified people and, you know, people who have different sorts of relationships than the norm. And, you know, to me that what was really interesting about doing that is, you know, I do a lot of sermons, right? But to me, singing on stage was as sacred to me as a sermon, because at the end of the day, um, if, if you can create a space for people to see themselves, um, that is a super powerful thing. And if you can create a way to invite people to have a little bit more understanding or empathy, 
be, um, even if they can't see themselves in the material, um, in a way that invites them in instead of trying to humiliate them in. Mm. That is that's sustainable change, right? And I think over the years, I've tried to, you know, mature in my own understanding of why this is so important, how to do that, hopefully in a better way as time goes on, which is I often think about what are the ways in which my mind has been changed? What are the mechanisms that have worked for me? What are the mechanisms that haven't worked for me at all? Mm. And when I think about those things, I think about what can I create that obviously centers, you know, I'm always going to center, my priority is going to be, um, if I'm writing a song about queerness, I'm probably going to center those folks in what I'm writing. At the same time, um, we want transformation to happen. And I think about the ways that I have been transformed is realizing how much grace that I have received from people mm. who have a very different perspective than me. And so, you know, I, for example, I, I think about, you know, my family is uh, all lives in Texas and they have a very different belief system than I do. And often when I'm writing something, I'm thinking about folks like my family and thinking, what about this would invite them into a new way of thinking? Mm. Because, None of them would, you know, would approach something and like, you're awful, you're, you know, whatever, um, you're going to shut off. But if I can approach something through storytelling, through comedy, through hearing this fun ukulele music at the same time as saying street harassment is always bad, right? <laughs> um, then maybe there's a way that we can sort of break through and connect with each other, you know, beyond what all of our instincts are. Um, and what society tempts us to do, which is to be polarized. And guess what? Being polarized often feels really good. We have to admit that, right? It's um, simple, right? It's cut and dry. And having us versus them. I mean, we we get this, uh, you know, feeling, I think, okay, I'll say for me, this like tightness in my chest, you get like this sense of when you're you're literally clenching, and when you're feeling passionate about my idea, my thought is the only right thing. And that happens with religion and lots of other things. What I think the arts can do is unclench some of that and, and help us see that, that maybe that temporary feeling of being right, that we can relax and let that go a little bit and that nothing bad is going to happen. Mm. And, and it's okay. It doesn't mean anything about our value and who we are. And detach a little bit from that and be able to just let something else just sort of, you know, be porous and move into that Whoa, space. I love that. Yeah. So, you know, that's the people offering me those chances of hearing stories and those conversations that I'm sure required a lot from them because I, you know, we're all naive about most things actually. And so, you know, I hope that in some of the work that I do, I can, you know, have that moment of invitation. Now here's the thing. You can put the invitation out there. Invitation inherently means people can say yes or no. 
So I have grace for people who haven't gotten a lot of invitations um, because, you know, you think about it. Uh, what I believed in what I thought of 10, 15, 20 years ago is radically different from what I think now. Mm-hmm. And in the, the setting that I grew up in, there was no way, 0.0 way in that environment that I would have known about most of the stuff I know about now. However, um, it's my responsibility, knowing the things I know now, to not ignore those invitations anymore. And so I think that, you know, as people of faith, especially, we are encouraged to say, when I get these invitations to know something different, what part of me can I open up a little bit and not be afraid about? So, you know, I hope that the things that I create, the silly, weird, sometimes vulgar songs that I sing are, you know, help to open up a little bit of that. And, And you know what? Here's the thing. One of the other reasons why I think it's really important to follow other voices is because we we not only get to experience the change that needs to happen from the voices that are saying, this is the change that we need to happen. We also get to experience and understand more dimensions. So if you're following a bunch of queer folks, you're not only seeing, here's the change that we need to happen, but you're seeing different ways of being in relationship you're seeing different ways of experiencing joy from a queer lens. You're experiencing this fullness in this dimension that is not just one piece of somebody saying that we need change, even though that's true. We are experiencing a bigger sense of the wholeness of each other. Mm. And I think that good art at its core invites us to see the wholeness of self and the wholeness of other. Because as soon as we start to dehumanize anyone, we believe that violence is okay. If we dehumanize anyone, we per- will perpetuate violence on them in a way that is detached. Yeah. And if we can uh, resist the temptation that we are given all the time to do that, um, what would change if we saw everyone as a whole being with thoughts and feelings and fears and their own trauma. And absolutely, does that mean that we can't demand change from the powers that be? Of course not. But can we do it in a way that's different from the way that's been set out? And so all that to say, I mean, I could talk about this forever. As you can see, I get excited about it. But I think that that's why, you know, people who create and people who tell stories and people who, um, you know, are willing to sort of put themselves out there through music, through plays, through whatever. I mean, they are what I would consider prophets, right? Because prophets say this, this is what is possible mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an imagination that is beyond what we've experienced. And I think queer folks and marginalized folks have the best imaginations ever because we have had to imagine a future that doesn't exist in order to survive the present. And so we can move towards this thing that we don't know what it is because we actually haven't had a chance to experience it because we have an ima- imagination to live through the current day-to-day stuff. As a survival and, um, mechanism. Right. And, and not even in a, it's just something that we have done because we've had to. It's not mm-hmm. any special. It's just like, yeah, this is what we've been doing. <laughs> and, I, and I would say that I never wish 
um, you know, folks to be in that position. However, the gift that we have from that is the ability to imagine these different futures and to move towards that. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, especially folks who, you know, uh, have different experiences than me are going to offer me that sense of imagination that I feel, you know, maybe I'll think it's possible in some way to move towards that. I, so, Pam, I yeah. love what you're saying about d doing, uh, doing that through invitation as the mechanism, as the offering rather mm -hmm. than, um, you know, rather than, pushing our, our narrative or pushing our agenda. Mm -hmm. It's saying, you know, I would love to share a story with you. If, right. would you like to listen? Would you like to hear my story? And whether that story is literally someone's life story um, and their journey, their experience, or if that story is a, a hilarious and vulgar ukulele song or a, mm -hmm. a cute play or a, um, a really sad and tragic uh, play or, or whatever it might be, a, a film, a, a, any, any form of art. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm myself an artist, I'm a filmmaker, and I've been involved in community theater in our community here for a lot of years and seen how that can so powerfully move people and impact people emotionally and spiritually. And yet I, uh, I don't know that I've thought about it in the language that you've just so eloquently shared with us and how powerful that, um, that can be in creating mm -hmm. change, but done so respectfully to, to the other, right? To the right. audience, to the listener, if they would like to, to say yes to that invitation and they don't have to, and that's okay. Right. I, I just yeah. love that. Um, there's, I just saw something on your website, uh, this morning that I don't know if you've shared, I'm sure you've shared this on social media. It's a quote of yours that says, physically distancing is an act of love. Socially connecting in new ways is, is an act of love. Love hasn't changed. It is unfolding and we're invited to enflesh it. I think mm. that so perfectly ties into what you were just talking about. Mm. I think that that line, that quote is a great place to maybe wrap up our conversation today. There's so much more we could talk about. What does that quote mean for you? And what, and what were those words for you that you shared? Mm -hmm. I think for me, I, it's, it's no doubt been a really difficult time for so many folks on so many levels. We know that I don't have to go into it in this moment. But I think it comes down to the sense of, you know, to me and my context, not feeling like powerless in this situation where we can't, you know, physically gather in the ways that we're used to, but finding creative ways to say, like, we're still human. We still need that connection. We still want to feel like we can love and be loved. And so, you know, again, invitation, our invitation is to see being socially connected in new ways as not necessarily oppression, but uh, an invitation to do things a little bit differently. And, you mm -hmm. know, speaking of artists, you know, even like yourself, when we think about the arts, what has sustained us in the past few months, right? Whether it's Netflix, watching plays over Zoom or whatever, mm -hmm. it's the artists who have sustained us during this time. And so I think that that concept of love 
and of not feeling like just because it's not the way that it normally looks, that it doesn't exist or that it doesn't matter. And we've really seen people show up in such creative ways and give of themselves often for free, which they totally don't have to. Um, and, oh, that's what we need. We need to, I, I've said this so many times in this conversation, but, you know, I believe so truly that we're not alone and that's, we're not alone in a divine sense, but we're also not alone in, in a community sense. And even if we don't physically see the people who remind us of that, we must know and be reminded that we're not. Because no matter how good our life might be or how, you know, whatever, there's always going to be moments where we truly wonder if we have a purpose, if we belong, if we matter, if, if we matter, right? Yeah. And the gift of knowing that we matter is that we are automatically compelled to know that other people are too. Yeah. That they how, matter how too. How could it be that... Um, you get to that point, you realize, okay, I matter, but this other person doesn't. Right. I mean, it's so, it's so true. It's just, it's a, such a core basic t uh, truth that um, we are all one, we're all connected and that no single person could ever be more, um, more important or more valuable to, to God or to just to the world, um, to our communities than, than another and to to have these uh, systems that place hierarchies or that place order over or yeah. or hold power over one thing that Robin in in our uh, faith community here has said has t spoken about so many times is that Jesus was always about power with and never about power over mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's, it's something that we can know in our, like intellectually, but it's another thing to live it out and to be aware mm -hmm. of our own uh, unseen prejudices or biases or um, ways in which we're uh, supporting st status quos that are not creating safe spaces for, yeah. for our fellow human beings. So Pam, I, I, can't thank you enough for not only your time this morning, but just the work you're doing is profound and it's clearly um, having a, a massive impact. And I think just hearing about it for people on the podcast, it's going to have an impact on, on more lives. So do I have time to, to talk about Margaret for a second? Oh, yes. I had a note right here to, to okay, ask good. you to, to I mean, I, I hate to cut you off when you're saying such nice things about me, but <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, this is, this is really short, but to go back to something that you said, how can, how can we make change as just one person at the end of the two days of the public hearings and 121 people calling in and, you know, over 50% of them being very negative, we're all sitting and waiting for what the last caller is going to say, because we just want the last caller to bring sort of some sort of redemption, right? No pressure. <laughs> and the lot, we were told the last caller, you know, the person's name and he came on and he, of course he was awful. And we're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. But then the chair said, Oh, there's one more, there's one more person on the line. 
And so here this person, you know, uh, this, you know, sort of meek, you know, older woman, you know, gets on the phone and she says, you know, my name is Margaret and I'm calling in because I have not heard a lot about love in the last two days. And I'm a Christian and I have a transgender daughter. And this is not, what I've heard is not the Christianity that I believe in. And, you know, when our daughter came out to us and told us who she was, I looked back and I realized that she was our daughter all along. And that God had created her this way. And that we needed to have a continuous unconditional love for who she was. And she talked for maybe three minutes and she said, we are all wonderfully made. And it was just so like just this like deep breath, I think for so many folks who had heard such a different voice from people who had the label of Christian and for her to claim it in just a really beautifully simple way. Um, after that, we were, you know, it was all over social media, be like Margaret, you know, like, <laughs> um, and I actually found her and had a conversation with her and her daughter um, oh, no. a couple of days later. But here's the thing, Margaret found out this was happening and she decided she would just call in. She had no idea that she would basically have to figure out how to wait for two days to have her voice heard. She's from Ottawa. She had a, you know, she had a life, things going on. She stayed and was on there to be the last caller, not personally knowing anyone who was in this work here in Calgary. Wow. And she had just seen somebody had posted something on Facebook about it. And she said, you know, I can't do a lot, but I can do this. And her being there, the thousands of people who were listening and the dozens of people who were on the phone and heard her in real time, what she, those she meant in those words to us, you know, I had to find her and let her know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because if she had thought, you know, my voice doesn't really matter in this, then we would have ended all of those hours on a, a very devastating phone call, actually. So, you know, for those of you who are listening, you you may never know. You know, you could you could be a Margaret and, and maybe some some weird queer person isn't going to find you and, and ask you to zoom with them. Um, but you know, we all had the opportunity to do that. And so never ever think that you, um, you know, following that little thing in your heart that is, you know, asking you to do something. Don't think that it doesn't matter because it does no matter how small it might seem to you. And I think Margaret is a really shiny example of, reminding us that we weren't alone right yeah so wow. that's that's what i wanted i had to talk about margaret oh man I i'm to. so <laughs> i'm so glad that you shared your margaret story and that margaret story could be i mean there there's a pam story and i hope that there's a ben story and that that anyone can be part of can create 
um, their own Margaret story just by sharing love. I mean, it is so simple. It's so basic. Mm -hmm. She, she was taking a stand and carving out all that time and being really intentional about it. And there was energy that went into that and and effort and she had to do the work to, you know, she said that it was just, I can't do much, but I can do this small thing. Well, it's huge. That small thing is huge. And um, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And just like you said, following that, that gut intuition that like, maybe I have something to say here, or maybe it's just listening sometimes, like we were talking about earlier and learning more, expanding our own um, thoughts and our own awareness about uh, what's going on around us in our communities and in the world. And then just responding in love. Um, That's, that's really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Thank you for a great conversation. You seem like a genuinely curious person and it's always great to have conversations with people who are, you know, really curious about, um, you know, this, these kinds of conversations. And I really hope that I get to meet you and folks in your community. It sounds like uh, there's a ra- lot of really important and fun and really needed things that are happening. And I would love to be able to take part in that in some way in the yeah, future. Well, so. we'll have to chat more about that, Pam, because we would love to have you. We'd love to host you and maybe have you come speak or something like that uh, in in Basha or Pinoka. It's, it is a really uh, incredible community here. And, and then this online community that we're building has really been amazing too. So thank you for for being part of it and for for joining us and uh and thank you for those kind words I, th- I think that this to me this uh community of faith that we're building through six ways from sunday is a- about that exactly what, what you said about being authentically curious i i think that there's no other way other than authentic curiosity that mm-hmm. we can really expand our own uh ourselves as human beings um and that's really what to me what uh real stories of human spirituality and what this podcast is all about is that authentic curiosity so yeah that's a yeah it's a great place to to wrap it up and just want to again thank you pam for for your sharing your love for your sharing your story for the work you're doing and who you are in the world thank you so much ben it's been a great great conversation yeah it was awesome Thank you everyone who was listening today and for sharing this episode of the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or on your podcast app. And uh, until you join us again another time, uh, take care and be well.